welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and it's good to have your company. Now, my guest today is Claudia Megley. Now, Claudia is an expert on digital engagement, online safeguarding. She's the co-chair of the Principal Social Workers National Network and she's a fellow of the National Institute of Health Research and the head of service in a local authority. But as well as that, really, over the last 14 years, she has researched social media technologies, their impact, and she's published her work, Theorizing Twitter Chat, to studying the effect of social media on relationships and identity. She was selected as one of the 50 most influential higher education professionals using social media and as one of the top 10 most engaged power women on LinkedIn UK. Quite a lot to live up to, Claudia. Welcome to the programme. Thank you. Thanks so much, David. And um, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, let's go straight to the nub of it all. What got you first interested in in online safeguarding? Mm. So um, that's that's a really, really great question. And it kind of takes you a little bit on um, my career and professional journey, if you wish, because um, I've always been interested in technology and its impact. Um, And my first research in this area was on identity and hyper reality. And then later with the start of Twitter in 2006 and Facebook becoming open to the public, I became interested in social media as a projection of individual identity and its impact on relationships. And then I moved my area of focus from sociology and social psychology to social work. And I was actually a practicing social worker when the tragic death of baby Peter Connolly occurred. And David, as you'll remember at the time, there was a huge a negative narrative surrounding social work. And then that's when I first started the social work and social media group on LinkedIn. And kind of the aim or the hope with the creation of that group or space was that it could offer a more accurate and positive narrative around social work. So when I first created it, it was a closed group, but I soon realized that the only way to challenge the negative stereotype the social workers had at the time and the negative narrative was to create a counter narrative that could be that could evidence uh, the good work that social workers were were undertaking every day in practice, and that essentially, in terms of that group. Uh, the group needed to be uh, an open group in order to have impact. So in 2011, I started the social work and media community on Twitter. And um, as a part of that group, that group was very much a community of practice, uh, a knowledge community. And I used a number of different social media sites in order to operationalize it. And part of the strategy was um, to use open uh, Twitter chats uh, that would focus on all topics relating to social work. And of course, at the time when I started it in 2011, as you would recall, David, kind of Twitter was very new. We had very few social workers on Twitter and the idea of doing um, a, a Twitter chat on specifically social work and no one had done that before. So, you know, starting the chats, I was uh, initially, you know, quite nervous. I was worried about how it would be received. Um, but thankfully, it was received uh, warmly. 
and there was um, a lot of uh, success around it. But you might also remember that um, at the time, there were very few social workers on social media. So this idea or this concept about e-professionalism was also very new to the professions. No, no, that's good. Thanks, buddy. I mean, I, 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 I think that was a very interesting and historically accurate uh, explanation, if you like, about the landscape. I wonder if we could get your take a little bit. That's good for the networking, but a little bit about online safeguarding itself, because the risks, I'm told, and people begin to understand this, this sort of you know widely, is that it's the the internet and online safeguarding is now become quite a huge issue, and predators and others who wish to take advantage of young people, children, vulnerable adults, etc., are flocking to it, and therefore the, um, the 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 way to combat it is is constantly being relived. So, what's different about online safeguarding? Would you say? So, in terms of about what's new or what's different about about online safeguarding, I'd like I'd like to share a story about um, a young person, uh, and I think this this kind of uh, articulates the point quite well in terms of online safeguarding, and that really it's a, it's a range uh, that social workers need to think about. So. Um, in particular, it's a it's a story about a 15-year-old girl that took her own life. So she stepped in front of a train in London on the 14th of October in 2012. And her name was Tawilla Mary Scarlett Wilson. And she was described as a beautiful, bright, clever, funny, and a kind person. She was also a very talented dancer. She was even headhunted by the Royal Ballet. But life wasn't easy. She had difficulties with her friendship group. She was bullied and she started to self-harm. And because of this, she ended up creating an alter ego online. And she would post images of herself harming online. And increasingly, she spent more and more time online. So she would spend hours on Tumblr every day viewing pro-Anna self-harming and suicidal content. And she also posted uh, self-harming and suicidal information online. And she gained a lot of popularity on the site. She started to attract quite a large following. And the medium became very important to her because it was a way that she could express herself. And it was an area of her life that she felt that she had control over or recognition over. But then uh, when her mother discovered her social media posts and the way she was using social media, her mother deleted her account. Six days later, Tuwilla killed herself by stepping in front of a train. Later, when they had an inquest, they called a number of individuals to give evidence at her inquest. And the consultant psychiatrist that she was seeing gave evidence. And he noted that with hindsight, it seems that when her Tumblr account was deleted, she may have felt herself to be deleted in some way. And uh, some of the reasons for her feeling this way in terms of her online identity, she gained a lot of satisfaction from her online identity. So on the one hand, uh, the internet had a negative impact on her. And on the other hand, um, 
the 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 internet gave her a sense of recognition, a sense of power, and a sense of belonging. And so the, the paradox was that it demonstrated dangerousness, but also therapeutic help. Well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't terminate I, I wouldn't call it as therapeutic help. Instead, I think I think what what this what this particular example highlights to us is that in terms of social media, it's really important that we understand and online risks and the idea of if someone's engaging with social media in a manner in which we can identify and see risks that at times the easiest option looks like it's important to close that down because there's risk associated with it. But I think instead it highlights that the risk is really complex. So on the one hand, there's risk with shutting down um, the social media uh, profile. And then on the other hand, um, there is uh, the risk of, of not shutting it down. So what's important is that we understand the online identity and what the social media um, actually means for that child or for the young person? What's the purpose? How do they understand it? And are there any positives to them using it? Because obviously in terms of her social media account being closed down, at the time, no one thought that it would result in her taking her own life. And the I think the case study here highlights the importance of digital identity and that we, if we don't have a good enough understanding of the digital identity for the child and how they understand social media, how they use social media, that we could be increasing risk, although we think that we dis although we think that we might be decreasing risk. And I think that with um, my new book, my new book captures some of this complexity and it uses different case studies and case scenarios and case examples to uh, underline that the risk is fluid, complex and dynamic. And we really need a psychosocial, ecological approach in order to um, understand risk. Why? Because children live in liminal lives. Their lives okay. are lived online as well as offline. So I think the idea of simply saying we're going to shut down someone's social media profile, I don't think it's it's um, it's an approach that we can continue to take because digital identities have become too important. I think instead we need to think more about digital empowerment, digital engagement, digital rights and digital citizenship. So children and young people feel empowered. So they become um, aware of when someone's trying to groom them online and they become confident that it's someone asked them for a nude photograph or sexting, that they have the confidence to say, actually, I'm not going to do that because I understand my rights and my responsibilities. And that if you were a real friend, you wouldn't be asking that of me. So I think that's where we need to get to instead of saying, oh, this technology, how do we shut it down? How do we, you know, do this or that? Instead, it's more about that. All right. Well, let's let's look let's look a little bit separately from that. But taking two things out of that. Firstly, repeat the name of your book and where it's available. That's number one. And number two, well, I want to go on to cyberbullying, but go on. Could you just sort of tell the? I'll put it in the text of the podcast as well. But just for the for the listeners, tell them the name of your book. Um, so the name of the book is Safeguarding Children and Young People Online, a guide for practitioners, and it's published by Policy Press and available on Amazon 
as well as policy press website. There you go. Right. Now, secondly, I, I was thinking as you were talking there about the way to actually not only empower young people, but, but obviously protect them at the same time or, and help them protect themselves as much as, you know, society protecting them. But we know that there are tens of thousands of young people in this country who are the victims of cyberbullying. And that, in effect, that has become quite a, a dangerous rash, if you like, <clears throat> and byproduct. What sort of um, thoughts have you got about developments about how to kind of, if you like, not only just discourage, but almost kind of empower young people to kind of um, take steps to combat this as well? So, you know, cyberbullying, um, you know, I think I think firstly to say that in terms of uh, cyberbullying, victims are becoming younger and younger. And I don't know if uh, you recently read about the nine-year-old boy from Colorado, Jamal Miles. He took his own life um, in August of this year, and he was only nine years old. So he took his life a few days before he started the fourth grade. So that is incredibly young. And in terms of um, him taking his, his own life, his mother believed that um, the reason why he took his own life was because he was um, bullied online. And she believed the reason he was bullied online was because um, he, was, he, he, was, he was gay. So I think in terms of cyberbullying, I think it's, it's quite a complex phenomenon. Um, and cyberbullying is different to offline bullying in a number of ways. So I think firstly, cyberbullying is um, continuous. It's 24 hours a day. And often the victim feels that they can't get away from um, uh, the bully because it's online and it, ho it happens within a kind of a social media context other predatory individuals who don't even know the victim can start harassing them and posting uh, hateful messages about them online. And I think also something that's quite new about or different um, between cyberbullying and offline bullying is that there's more shame associated with cyberbullying in front of a large audience and the audience can grow very quickly. So the aggression and humiliation is very public and kind of the posting and reposting of comments and, and or people who view, share or repost likely it's, it is to go viral. And of course, something that's very distressing for young people or for children is that they feel that their identity is damaged beyond repair. And it's often this idea that they damage, that their identity or their image is damaged beyond repair that results in suicidal ideation or children or young people actually taking um, their own life. And something that's also really important to think about when we think about cyberbullying is that children and young people, their brains are still developing. So they are in a pre-abstract stage of thinking. So their behavior is more impulsive, um, their thoughts are more impulsive than adults. So when they have, um, you know, an overload of negative emotions because of cyberbullying, you can see how that can very quickly escalate. So in terms of uh, cyberbullying, we know that research tells us that if an individual is supported online, 
So all they need is one or two friends to stand up for them um, and say, actually, you know, I I like Tim. Tim's my friend, and uh, what you're saying about him is not fair and it's not right. Um, they need support from a friend or a professional in order to disrupt that negative narrative. Interestingly, what we see is, although with cyberbullying and at times cyberbullying, um, you know, has hundreds and hundreds of uh, individuals posting negative messages about about one person, sometimes a person that they don't even know, the larger the audience the less likely it will be that someone's going to intervene. And then um, what's what's important is that we kind of understand the bystander effect and that in terms of the bystander effect, um, the the role that bystanders take in cyberbullying, it's quite a complex role, if you wish, because they can be divided into three categories. One, those that assist or reinforce the bully two, those that defend the victim, or three, outsiders that just completely ignore the bully. And I think uh, those that defend the victim, they're very rare indeed. Why? Because often there's a fear that they'll become bullied themselves. I mean, there's some very interesting statistics around it. So Whitaker, who did some research in this area, he found that 40% of adolescents have experienced cyberbullying, and 70% of adults have viewed some kind of so, you know, a key question is, are we becoming more desensitized? These are high statistics. These are high numbers, aren't they? They are. They are. But also, if we look at the landscape, so David, you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. Um, you see public naming and shaming on on a, on a regular basis. You often see people making uh, comments towards other people and people that have a large fan base often using or trying to mobilize that fan base if they disagree with something someone else has said and they use that fan base to sometimes attack someone else. So I think uh, an important part of stopping cyber abuse and cyber bullying is what kind of actions do we as adults take and how do we model positive engagement or positive behavior. All right, let, let me take you up on that one thing, Claudia, just at this point. Um, I mean, I want to do, ask you a little bit about the statutory services and how they could, uh, how far they should go in terms of uh, investigating people's online activity to ultimately protect the vulnerable. Um, I'm thinking, for example, you mentioned earlier on in the interview today, Peter Connolly, uh, Baby P. Now, we all know that one of the things that all these services said was that they didn't know anything about the boyfriend that was there. They didn't know all about what mum was very manipulative and wouldn't let people in and so on and so forth. Yet the day before he died on Facebook, mum posted all about her new lover um, being in the house and what kind of person he was, sex, drink and rock and roll. And effectively, if people had been monitoring her online activity, there might just have been that breakthrough. What's your views about how much intervention statutory safeguarding authorities should be allowed to do in order to protect young people? So, I mean, you know, it's interesting because that happened in, in 2012 and that was you know, one of the reasons why I set up the 
social work, social care, social media group was precisely around that. Um, you know, as social workers receiving a lot of negative feedback from some areas of the media and the press for why had they not checked mother's social media account. So I, it's an important area for us and reflect upon and consider. But at the same time, we also have to think about the role that uh, social workers have compared to the role of police. And that essentially, um, so in terms of uh, viewing service users, social media pages, it's important that we adhere to the OCS guidance and the RIPA guidance. Um, when we think about um, social media and whether it's okay to view social media pages. So in, in brief, either you need consent or you need appropriate authorization. And also really important to say that social workers work in partnership with um, the police. So uh, police, they also have power in order to have the ability to check uh, social media pages, they would get their own uh, court approvals. It's important that we go through the necessary checks and balances um, uh, before we view social media pages, if you wish. Um, and and I think that's really important because if, if a social worker doesn't do that, as a phishing expedition, it could also be seen as um, harassment or um, undertaking covert surveillance of a service user. So really important to bear that in mind and think about what are some of the risks and is it at a stage where uh, you need to work with the police in order to gain access to that information or work with the courts in order to gain access to that information. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? It is. It, it very much is. And I think that um, obviously something that's really important is that if legislation changes and if um, it, hypothetically in the future social workers would be asked to view social media pages as part of a Section 47 investigation, for instance, um, you know, a lot of thought would need to go into that in terms of what would that look like um, and how would that change the role of uh, the social worker. And then also it means that you would need to review social media pages and you would need to have a systematic approach or way in order to do that. Because, of course, something that's important to consider when we're thinking about social media is authenticity in social media. Why? Because everyone presents the best version of, their, of themselves on social media. People alter images, Photoshop images, um, and kind of edit their lives in ways that can look more positive or less positive. Because we could flip that on its head also. We could say, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you could view a social media page and someone's life looks like the absolute perfect life. So is that proof that they have a perfect mm. life? Mm. So I, I understand. I think that, that's quite a, a, a valid point there. This is Claudia, we're coming to the very end of the interview, but just before we stop, I, I would like if you could just to give me a one minute answer, if you could about um, this, what your message to the safeguarding community would be about online safety? Mm. So I think in terms of safeguarding, um, I 
think that, you know, children are interacting in a world that's very different to the world that we grew up in. So take, for example, a young child that sees a letter and shouts to his mom, look, it's an email or a young girl that tries to swipe away through a magazine because she's so used to uh, an iPad, or a young child that wakes up in the middle of the night because he's afraid that his iPad might be lonely. Uh, children uh, interact with objects in smart ways and very different ways to us. The way they have relationship with technology is very different to the way we have relationships with uh, technology. So in terms of online safeguarding, I think the focus needs to be on digital identities, digital relationships, and what social media or technology means for the child or young person. I think that in terms of digital abuse, and digital harm, it's changing constantly. Um, and that means that it's difficult to keep up to technology to keep up with technology. I think legislation also finds it difficult to keep up with uh, technology. Um, and that's why it's important that we have a structured framework for assessing um, online risks. And I think that um, it's only through us rethinking the assessment triangle and um, including a digital component that will really have a holistic model of safeguarding children and young people. Because I think what's important in today's day and age is to have the foresight because we won't be able to legislate or create policies for every single eventuality. And instead, I think we've got to equipped practitioners so that they are able to be digital practitioners and kind of engage with this landscape in uh, a fluid and analytical manner and really keep relationships um, at the heart of practice because essentially the child or young person also has a relationship with um, you know the individuals online with their social media accounts etc etc. Claudia it's been a pleasure listening to you today and thank you very much indeed for being a guest on the podcast. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, David. It was great speaking with you today. Okay. And to the listeners, thank you for your company and um, watch this space, but also remember to give some feedback. And also you'll remember there's the SpeakPipe facility on the podcast where just with one click, you can give your views about this subject, which is going to be a subject that's going to consume us, I think, for a long time to come, however good we get at recognising risk. So many thanks to all of you and uh, see you next time.